Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to a special edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin, coming to you from Beijing. Decoupling from China is self-destructive, so says Helga Zeblach-Rouge, founder and chairperson of the German think tank, the Schiller Institute. She calls the idea a geopolitical plot, which amounts to economic suicide for Germany, with the European Union and the world economy suffering the consequences. If decoupling from China will lead to further damage, what are her thoughts on the so-called alternative approach of de-risking with China? And as the new Silk Road lady, how does she rate the BRI 10 years on? Has it proven to be the new world land bridge like the ancient ones? I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Helga Zeblahouche. Ms. Zeblahouche, welcome to The Point. You have said on various occasions that... Uh, to decouple from China, there will be potentially enormous cost. What exactly do you mean by that? How enormous would the cost be? Well, first of all, I don't think it's very practical given the fact that the economy is both between Europe and China and the United States and China are so interwoven that you know it's like cutting your own hand off when you when you do that. Furthermore, I think that you know the Western financial system is in a terrible condition. Um, Bloomberg recently mentioned that uh, 4,800 U.S. firms, uh, banks, uh, half of them are bankrupt. The U.S. debt may default, and that that would lead to a worldwide panic, unemployment, and so on. I think we are sitting on a powder keg. I think if if this policy is continued. You know, the real losers will be the West because the Western financial system is bankrupt, while other countries like China are based much more on physical economy. Therefore, they would survive such a situation much, much better. But you can see in the case of Russia, where the sanctions completely backfired. It was not Russia which suffered. Now Germany is being deindustrialized as a result, and uh, Russia is doing relatively well. So I think this policy is completely foolish. And the people who are pushing decoupling are economically, uh, you know, extremely stupid. If it is so stupid, where do you think the whole talk of decoupling come from? Uh, are European businesses, are European politicians really towing the talking points, you know, copying the talking points from the United States? Well, yes, Europe at this point, with very few exceptions, like President Macron, lost all independence. And what the European governments are doing is totally against the interest of the industry. The German industry now starts very timidly to protest and say that they need the cooperation with China. But it comes from, an, uh, you know, from the geopolitical determination uh, to you know, crush Russia. I think that is not too strong a word. And to, you know, after they would succeed to do that with Russia, then the next would be China. So I think it's a it's part of the confrontation policy coming from the West right now. Now, trade between China and Germany soared to 300 billion euros last year, making China Germany's uh, number one or main trading partner for the seventh consecutive year. But some 
somehow some people are calling this economic dependency. Uh, do you think that is the case? And how to explain this mentality that a lot of trade necessarily puts you in a disadvantaged position? I think that is sophistry. You know, I mean, look, when you have a functioning world economy, countries cooperate. Germany has benefited tremendously from cooperating with China without the Chinese economy being de facto the motor of the world economy, the world would be in a much worse state. So it's it's sophistry. I think you know, the people who are saying these things are just lying. It has no reality in economic fact. And right now, Germany is completely dependent on the United States. We are now buying uh, energy, which is three times more expensive than the Russian gas in the form of American LNG. Um, the American uh, legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, causes uh, firms to, you know, leave Germany and invest in the United States because otherwise they can't survive. So Germany is becoming dependent more and more from the United States and not from China. So it, you know, people should not always believe the formulations which are being used because they have an intention almost all of the time. Is that why uh, in one of the recent events you were cautioning against a Great Depression coming up and you were also calling that uh, politicians, for instance, across the Atlantic are sleepwalking and the mass media are almost doing a criminal job uh, in their effort to distract people, to use disinformation, to convince people that the world is not is very different than it actually is? Is that what you're talking about here? Well, I know from many personal discussions that in the establishment in the West, many people on the top know perfectly well that the casino economy is, is finished, that it's bankrupt, that the policy of profit maximization for decades has uh, been at the disadvantage of the real economy. The rich became richer, billionaires became more, millionaires became more, but the Billions of people have become poor, and that system cannot be sustained. So for those in the know, and there are some top executives in the banking sector and the financial sector who know perfectly well that the present condition of the financial system is such that it could blow out, you know, triggered by some bankruptcy like uh, First Republic Bank in America or uh, New Silicon Valley or the Credit Suisse in, uh, in Switzerland. Switzerland is now sitting on a huge mega bank because uh, UBS has taken over Credit Suisse, which is a tremendous vulnerability to the Swiss economy. So mm. this could blow at an instant, and the people who know that are continuing the game, and I call that criminal. To solve the problem, some people propose the idea of de-risking as if that is the way to go forward instead of decoupling. They are now talking about de-risking being the approach forward. What is your opinion on that? Well, I have not found anybody yet who could explain what the actual difference is between decoupling and de-risking. I mean, it's basically the same thing, um, you know, because it's the idea to isolate China to go to countries which are not China, but you cannot, I mean, China has an incredible advantage in terms of infrastructure, in terms of, uh, you know, skilled labor, in terms of an enormous uh, 
you know, a success story of modernization. If you go to certain centers like Shenzhen, uh, this is the, the you know state of the art in many technologies. You cannot go to any country which doesn't have these peak conditions and think you can de-risk by investing in these other countries. I think it's a, it's an effort to contain China and it will not work. I think it's a, it's a very foolish thing. Do you see, however, that there is any legitimacy in the kind of concerns expressed by the business community and sometimes by the political establishment about doing business with China being unbalanced? Do you see any elements of that? If so, what do you think is the right approach to address these problems? I studied the economic meeting which took place last December, where Xi Jinping uh, basically reset the strategy for you know having trade with other countries, and there is more opening up, more you know more focus on allowing foreign investment. I think all of these arguments don't hold uh, when you start to to look at it uh, in in reality. Naturally, one can always say you know there could be better uh, better conditions, but I think. Take, for example, the New Development Bank, which now was opened in Shanghai, where Dilma Rousseff is the new director. President Lula, when he was in China, he said this could become a great new bank of the global south. Now, if the West would be smart, they would somehow cooperate with these kinds of initiatives in the development of the global south, because that is the future markets. Africa, for example, will have 2.5 billion people by the year 2050. Now, if we want to have a peaceful world, Europe, European nations and even the United States would say, let's cooperate with China in developing these continents, Africa, Latin America, those parts of Asia which are not developed, even Europe as parts which are not yet developed. Let's concentrate on the joint projects, joint ventures, and everybody would have an advantage, but it would require a different mindset on the part of the West. Do you think that kind of mindset is, is can settle in anytime soon, given the current geopolitical tension that we're seeing from the West? Well, I think normally he would say no, because the establishments are quite hardened in their view. But you have right now a situation where both in the United States and in Europe, the policies of the governments are not taking into account the interests of the people anymore. Take, for example, the fact that the German government did not protest that in all probability uh, it was the U.S. administration which blew up the Nord Stream pipelines. I mean, the investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch has given absolute evidence uh, for that. We discussed with many military experts in Europe, in different countries, who all confirmed that that is the only possible explanation. Did the German government protest at least to the American government? No. But who pays the bill? It's the ordinary people who have now to pay much more for energy, cost of life. And that's just one example of many, many. So I think that we are heading towards a situation where sudden changes will offer opportunities to indeed completely change the parameters and also the attitude of the majority of the people.
You are known to many as the new Silk Road Lady as we celebrate the 10th anniversary of the idea of uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Um, do you think this initiative has made the kind of impacts it was expected of? And um, concerning the various Western concerns associated with this initiative so far, such as high debts, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that the 10 years of Belt and Road Initiative have completely transformed the world. Uh, for example, the countries of the global south have now a new self-confidence that with the collaboration with China and the Belt and Road, that they can finally overcome colonialism, poverty, underdevelopment. And I have seen in the recent period a complete new self-confidence, which is expressed, for example, in the fact that the BRICS countries have 19 applications for membership. Uh, many organizations of the Global South are now saying they need to take a stronger voice in the shaping of the world because they represent the majority of the human species. And that, I think, is only to be explained because the Bad Award Initiative exists and many fantastic projects have been realized, like the China-Pakistan corridor or the fast train between Jakarta and Bandung in Indonesia or the uh, fast train between Laos and Kunming, and many, many other such projects. So I think this is really not to be stopped, and no matter what the West is trying to do, I think mm. that they have lost the game, and uh, China has proven that they do indeed something in the interest of the developing countries, and that the win-win policy is much superior than the policy of trying to suppress others. However, to proceed, to go forward and to avoid the kind of scenario that you have warned, which is the world falling into two blocks, one represented by the US-led West and the other Russia, China and the global South, to avoid this scenario, what do you think China needs to do in order to proceed to, to create that kind of win-win? Well, I think that the, the three initiatives by President Xi Jinping, the Global Security Initiative, Global Development Initiative and Global Civilizational Initiative together as a package are the key to solve the situation because we need a new global security and development architecture which takes into account the interest of every single country on the planet. And the only kind of global thinking doing that comes really from these three initiatives. So I think that that must be discussed much stronger I would suggest that China should organize a lot of conferences inviting leaders of the global south to express their view. Uh, and I'm sure that then, you know, this will have impact on the people in Germany, in Italy, in France, because they do not know what the view is of the leaders of the global south, of the people of the global south. And there must be found a way of breaking that, because if you have only the opinion of the people, and the people really knew what is at stake, I think they would come to the right conclusion because I believe that fundamentally, fundamentally, man is good. All right, we have to leave at that time being very limited. Many thanks to founder and chairperson of the German think tank, the Schiller Institute, Helga Zeb Laroche, joining me from Beijing. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. What is the true African story? 
And how can one tell it truthfully? While in Shanghai recently to attend a South-South Communications Forum, I sat down with Kwesi Prad, a pioneer in giving Africa its own voices. What are the obstacles in telling the true African stories? Where to go to, and how can media organizations in the global South work together to amplify their voices? Here's our conversation in Shanghai. Kwesi, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, tell us about your institution, the Pan African Television. Why did you set it up together with other people, and what is your aim? Well, we actually have been trying to to develop the media, you know, as part of our effort to tell the true African story. And this dates back 40 years ago. First of all, we started producing a newspaper on Stalin machine, stencil, rolling it by hand, and so on. And then eventually, in 1991 or thereabout, we established a formal newspaper, The Insight, and we had ambitions, you know, to go into television and radio. And television became a reality seven years ago. And the main objective is to let people tell their own stories, you know, based on their own understanding of their history and their present, and to make people dream. I've been involved in broadcasting since 1969, and there are many things that I didn't understand. I mean, the makeup and so on, you know, the artificial arrangements and so on. I always wanted to see people in their natural environment, being themselves and expressing themselves, and that's the ambition. We haven't reached there yet, but hopefully, we'll get there one day. What is the true African story? The true African story dates back many years ago. Two thousand years before the birth of Christ, the days of Akinting, Imhotep, and so on—that's about two to three thousand years before the birth of Christ. The African story is a story of slavery, the transatlantic slave trade.、Mm. It's a story of classical colonialism, and today it's a story of neo-colonial exploitation, disguised colonialism. The African story is also a paradox. A paradox of so much riches in the midst of so much poverty. That's the African story. The African story is also a story of friendships, friendships around the world. The friendship between the founder of the Republic of Ghana, President Nkrumah, and the Prime Minister of China, Chu Wenlai. That's an African story. The African story is a struggle for Pan-Africanism. The African story is also a struggle for building a new world without war and without poverty, a new world in which children don't go to bed on bed on empty stomachs and so on. So the African story is diverse and complex. How do you tell this true African story? What do you do in your daily TV production, for instance, or newspaper articles that is different from the other ways that are not telling the true African stories? One of the ways is take the camera into the streets, take the camera into the villages,、mm. take the camera to where the people are in their own habitat, where the people live, where they work, and where they enjoy life. And to let the people express themselves—that's the true African story. It is not the story of heads of states. It is not the story of emperors. It is not the story of parliamentarians. It is the story of the real people who farm, 
who drive the commercial vehicles, the real people who do the construction, the real people who are affected by the ravages of our history. Is there any story that you can think of for now at this moment? We do not have the ambition to tell extraordinary stories. Mm -hmm. Our ambition is to tell ordinary everyday stories. Yeah. I did an interview with a woman who actually makes plantain chips. And when she went through her experiences, it explained the African condition. It explained the inequality in our society. It explains the hardships that people have to go through. And it explained also the kind of society in which we live, in which we have a filthy rich and the abominable poor and so on. So every story, you know, exemplifies a real situation and the real situation of inequality a real situation of exploitation and a real situation of limitations on the realization of the aspirations of our people. Where are the solutions? The solutions lie, first of all, in thinking and secondly, in acting. Mm -hmm. We have to challenge all the stories we've been told over the years. We've been told over the years that if we want to develop, we have to copy the West, okay? Nobody tells us that the West got to the stage in which it is today through the transatlantic slave trade, through the conquest of people, through colonialism, and through today's neocolonialism. Now, for us as African people, for us living in Ghana, we don't have the means and even the opportunity to enslave other people. For us living in Africa, we don't have the opportunity, the means, and even the morality to impose colonialism on other people. So that part to development is not available to us as a people. Our only part to development lies in self-reliant development and friendship with those who understand us. You talk about neo-colonialism. Uh, you mentioned it twice already. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because in, if you read what is being said on some international media, that means China. <laughs> they say China is trying to colonize Africa in a, under disguise of economic cooperation. So what do you see as real neocolonialism? Well, that kind of, of explanation it is difficult to understand. Well, first of all, China has not dropped bombs on any territories anywhere in the world. Uh, in the effort to steal the resources of those territories. China has not done that. China did not uh, capture Africans to use as beasts of burden for hundreds of years. China's attitude has been genuine friendship with the African people and indeed with all the peoples all over the world. In our most difficult periods, we counted on China. We stood shoulder to shoulder with China in combating racism, even in its worst form of apartheid. Yeah. The National Liberation Movement in Africa enjoyed considerable support from China and so on. So China is a friend. China is a brother. And China's understanding of Africa is not based on a hierarchical structure of masters and servants. It's based on a structure of mutual friendship and the development of the entire world for the prosperity of all the peoples of the world. So what do you see as the problem today when you say new 
uh, exploitation or new colonialism because you did mention it do you think there is a new form of exploiting African people, African countries that are done by, by, by some forces or riches, I don't know, capital in the world today? For many years, hundreds of years, our destiny was shaped. One, by the kind of education that all of us had, an education system which, which implanted in us a sense of inferiority. For many years, we were told that we couldn't do anything on our own and that we had to copy others. I went to school many years ago. I went to primary school many years ago. Only recently, I visited the school that I went to and found out that what I was taught is exactly what is being taught today in that school. Like? For example, we were made to sing songs, you know, as part of our instruction. And I went to the school that I went to, and they're still singing, London's burning, London's burning, fire, fire, no water. What has London burning got to do with the peasants in Ghana? What has London burning got to do with the working class elements struggling for improvements in the conditions of work and conditions of life and so on? So this type of education has planted in us a huge sense of inferiority. We've got to change that in order to get out of this whole system hmm, of the slave and his master. We've got to teach our people the great African stories of architecture, of engineering, of medicine, and so on. We've got to develop confidence in ourselves, and we've got to realize that we can become masters of our own destiny. Neocolonial exploitation finds expression in different forms. One of the means of perpetuating neocolonialism today is the prescriptions which are fed us by the Bretton Woods institutions, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Every now and then it has become cyclical. We run into difficulties, we are unable to pay our debts and we go to them for solutions. What solutions do they give us? Freeze employment in the public sector. Devalue your national currency, dismantle state enterprises, withdraw subsidies on social services and so on, and it makes our situation worse. So in five years we go back to the same institutions and they give us the same prescriptions. That's a problem. My exclusive interview with Kwesi Prad of Pan-African Television. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Li Xin, coming to you from Beijing. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Li Xin in Beijing. We've got The Point. With you.